Welcome back to our 34th podcast now in our series on world history. In our last podcast, we discussed the beginning ideas in, in launching the dawn of the age of exploration. We looked at the initial countries in Europe that would participate with the early stages of the age of exploration. We looked at the four uh, sources of motivation, as well as Columbus's attempt to try to ask Portugal and then Spain to uh, have or financially support his endeavors in order to see if there was a faster all-water route to Asia, to the East Indies. That said, we also looked at some of the new inventions that have been brought over from the East, the newly designed sails and three-masted ships, compass, gunpowder, etc., as we looked at. In terms of the discovery, we ended with Columbus setting sail on August 3rd, 1492, from Palos, Spain, with a total, including himself, of 90 men. And remember, again, as I say, from the moment those ships leave, our only written account of what took place was 100% from Columbus, as he was the only one, to our knowledge, that was literate. So as the 34th podcast begins, let's answer that question. If Columbus truly wanted to set sail to go directly west, then why was he heading south? Well, there was one more important item that Columbus was scratching his head about that had nothing to do with technology and had nothing to do with being able to persuade any of the royal European families to finance his endeavors. But it made him have more confidence that he would definitely be able to head west as long as he captured the right winds. So when he set sail south to southwest to the Canary Islands off of the western coast of Africa, a set of islands owned by Spain, he did stop there at the end of the month, towards the end of August, uh, resupplied himself with potable water, food, and other supplies. But what he was really looking to do was to capture something that didn't have a name as we know it today in modern day meteorology. Rather, what Columbus seemed to notice, or seemed to be a pattern, is on the anywhere in the European continent proper, from Spain north, through the Pyrenees Mountains, through France, all the way up, he noticed that predominant wind pattern was west to east. Day in and day out, that was the norm. Not that there weren't exceptions to the rules, not that there weren't times when there was no wind, but when the winds blew, predominantly it was west to east. That obviously, without the massive steam and combustion engines to put his ships forward, which just haven't been invented yet, he knew that that would be an uphill battle. But he also noticed that as he headed towards the Mediterranean Sea and south from there, that the predominant wind patterns were flipped they were from east to west. What Columbus was noticing with a high degree of predictability is what we call today trade winds. And these are the predominant wind patterns because unbeknownst to him that he can prove that a massive object like our planet that has a several mile thick atmosphere 
when spinning constantly in one direction, much less tilting to give us our seasons, that that mass of atmosphere is going to be able to move in predictable, semi-predictable patterns. That's what Columbus was noticing. So once he got down there south to the Canary Islands, resupplied, he then, starting in on September 5th, 1492, left the Canary Islands, sailing directly west, according to his compass. And, of course, as the men were cheering on all three ships, because it just seemed day in and day out that Columbus was right, that the winds were predominantly again carrying him from west to east, excuse me, the other way around, from east to west. Therefore, when one is looking, though, at, at as we talked about in the prior uh, podcast, that the sails are extremely important. Again, because, it remember, as I said before, wind speed is not the same as wind pressure. Wind pressure is four times the square of the speed. So a 10-mile-an-hour wind is 400 pounds of pressure. That's the reason, as I said also in that earlier podcast, prior podcast, that sails, experienced sailors, again, they don't try to catch the wind with the sails. They bend it. They're working with it, not against it. That said, please remember, too, that when Columbus is sailing from east to west, there in the early week, the first week of September in 1492, Remember what season it is. No, don't think about meteorological seasons like fall, winter, spring, summer. Sure, it's it's very late summer, early fall. I'm talking about another kind of season. A kind of season that can cause people that live year-round in the Caribbean some real anxiety. Hurricane season. No, they don't have that season nailed down just yet. But from J- June 1... To November 30th, in modern times, that's hurricane season in the Atlantic waters. That's what Calso Columbus is going to be having to put up with. On September 5th, when he sets sail, he begins to notice day in and day out that while he is definitely going north by the compass, 270 degrees of north, meaning west, Why is the sun rising and setting on those clear mornings and evenings? Why does the sun rising and setting changing over both ends of the ships, over the stern and the bow? If Columbus is sailing at exactly 270 degrees from north, that being west, then why is the sun not setting over the same points again and the bow and the stern of the ship. The reason being that he didn't know then is what we believe to be north, again, is only magnetic north. We correct, quote-unquote, correct our understanding of magnetic north so that we can have convenient 12 o'clock is north, 3 o'clock is east, 6 o'clock is south, 9 o'clock is west, or again, 90, 180, and 270 degrees of north, right? With Columbus having the compass in front of him, he's never sailing directly west. And on all four of his journeys, he never will. Columbus will always be sailing west, southwest. He's traveling, therefore, instead of at nine o'clock 
using again the face of a clock as an example, Columbus will always or continually be traveling at roughly 8.30. That's the reason why Columbus, if you were to take any point from modern-day Europe, uh, the west coast of modern-day Europe, even down to the Canary Islands, if Columbus were truly sailing directly west with all four of his trips, he would have discovered his all four trips would have landed him in the America, in North America. Rather, he's constantly in Central to South America, again, because of this misunderstanding of this still at that time brand new technology, of course, called the compass. We also know that at some point in late September, Columbus began to record an observation in the atmosphere where the sun was rising and then disappearing way out in the horizon and then reappearing again. And there seemed to be a massive, ominous black mass west to southwest of the three ships. And then one morning, waking up and realizing that black mass was gone. We don't exactly know whether they thought that that was the source of the end of the earth. Remember, again, they are still believing the earth is flat. Is that an indicator that the flat earth, they're hitting the edge of it or approaching it? Again, we don't know because Columbus is the only one that recorded anything. However, what we do know in retrospect, judging by the wind patterns on the, that Columbus recorded on the ships, is Columbus is arguably... The first group, along with his men, the first group of Europeans to truly be skirting with a hurricane. Remember that in a hurricane, the average hurricane direction is a counterclockwise, meaning that as it travels, being pushed by the Coriolis effect of the spinning of the planet, and as they travel west, the further and the closer they get, to the Americas, they begin to start turning north. It's just a predominant common pattern that hurricanes have taken ever since we've started to record and monitor their paths, much less their paths of destruction. However, with a hurricane, the four quadrants are not identical. In fact, without understanding it, the hurricanes can become far more deadly than they need to be if humans only practiced more caution. You'll notice that it is a while back when major cruise lines, international cruise lines would advertise cruises. If you'll notice back in the day that oftentimes the cruise companies would offer the lower prices in fall and a significantly higher prices in winter. Part of it is because uh, Autumn tends to be warmer, of course, than winter. Winter is a nicer time to escape to the Caribbean islands, say, in February than in uh, November. It was not uncommon, however, that when they advertised the lower prices in fall, they also had a no-refund policy. Part of the reason was we're offering you a great discount, but if we have to cancel due to weather, there's no refund. However, that same cruise, same number of days, same everything, offered between January and May would be significantly higher, and they would gladly be able to advertise full refund, even if it's the weather. Well, of course, because by and large, you're not going to have hurricanes at any time at that point in the year in the Caribbean, because hurricanes, in order to continue to generate and produce that massive engine, they need water temperatures consistently at 80 degrees or higher. 
By January, even the Caribbean, wonderful Caribbean waters have definitely cooled below 80 degrees, so producing a hurricane is this side of impossible. However, that still doesn't mean that there aren't pressure on hurricane, or excuse me, on the uh, cruise companies to continue to launch their cruises, even in questionable bad weather. One particular cruise line in 1996 was about to cancel because of a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. However, the hurricane was traveling north at a decent speed. The cruise liner would have been sailing south of the hurricane, of Hurricane Mitch. And again, they clearly understand the nature of hurricanes. And as I said, not all four corners or quadrants of a hurricane are the same. When a hurricane is traveling west, or let's just in this case example use north, because that's the direction Hurricane Mitch was going towards Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. When a hurricane is traveling north, the worst quadrant to be in is nine o'clock, or excuse me, 12 o'clock to three o'clock. So the worst, most dangerous quadrant is 12 to three. That's the quadrant that even many miles out, most likely you're gonna be sucked into the eye of the hurricane. The next most dangerous quadrant is your nine o'clock to 12 o'clock. Third in line of being dangerous is three o'clock to six o'clock. Your safest, if you dare to call, use that word, or I dare to use that word safe, is your six o'clock to nine o'clock. That's the quadrant that's practically spitting you out. It, again, you don't wanna get near it, but it's the safest quadrant if you have to be close to one uh, unsuspecting sailors that are caught in a hurricane. Hurricane Mitch was traveling at a decent speed north. Therefore, this cruise liner sailed to the south of it and was comfortably in the six to nine o'clock quadrant to the point of allowing people to go on deck to witness the back end of a massive category three hurricane. However, as the ship was sailing directly west, further and further from the hurricane, they noticed two things. The speed of the ship was getting slower, despite the fact that the engines were at the same RPM. What's worse is people were coming down below deck saying that that massive storm to the north seems to be getting closer to the ship. For reasons we still can't explain today, ladies and gentlemen, Hurricanes on their own, almost without warning, will not only stop and stall, but they have the capacity also to reverse themselves. And sadly, that's what Hurricane Mitch did. It started to reverse and go back on itself. While one might say, well, thank goodness they were in the six to nine o'clock quadrant. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Because the quadrants, as I explained them, are always in relation to the direction that the storm is moving. So when Hurricane Mitch reversed itself, the six to nine o'clock quadrant now became the 12 to three o'clock quadrant. Despite the high RPM that the captain made those screws spin or propellers spin, that massive cruise ship, despite the fact it was going west, was slowly being sucked east into the eye of the storm. The only thing that was ever found of that massive cruise ship was the huge oak staircase, which washed up to the shores of the Yucatan Peninsula some weeks later. 
Hurricanes, as we know today, are definitely nothing to risk or to play with. Unsuspecting Columbus and his men clearly did not have that knowledge, which then leads between the compass problems and skirting with a massive storm led to a possible mutiny on October 10th, 1492. Now, most of you, I would imagine, are very familiar with what a mutiny is. Again, that is an insurrection on the ship by the sailors attempting to either overthrow the captain or ignore him at best and have their own way with whatever they feel needs to be done with the ship. This is usually done in times of high anxiety or uncertainty. Keep in mind that they had been sailing now for five weeks off of the Canary Islands. Remember that for every one day they are sailing west, it is going to be a day and a half, if not two days, in order to come back. Because if they turn around on the same latitude that they're sailing west, they are now sailing into the wind. Again, they know how to handle that and they can work their way back. They could also go north and take advantage of the westerlies that would take them back to the uh, continental Europe. But again, that's going to take precious time. There is no sail through Walmarts. There's no sail through McDonald's anywhere on that massive Atlantic Ocean, as we know. So when we talk about a possible mutiny, we know it because Columbus put it in his log. What we don't know is, was Columbus saying that's enough, boys, we're turning around? And they said, absolutely not. We've come this far. There's still as much uh, water on the horizon. Let's keep going. Or did they finally have an end of it? Remember that whatever resources they have on that ship is continuing to dwindle. Also know the unbelievable high anxiety that occurs every day on that ship. Believe it or not, some people are surprised, as we'll talk about in just a second, that land is spotted. And when land is spotted, it's at two in the morning. You know, I'd say, okay, well, somebody obviously had insomnia on that ship to be able to be up at that hour and spot the, the islands of San Salvador. But the fact of the matter is most people were up at night. There was no way you were going to have the, the calm uh, demeanor in order to sleep. The reason being is because that's where you were stuck with high anxiety. During the day, even in cloudy skies, you can see as far as the horizon allows you to with the, with the, uh, with the daylight and sunlight. However, at night, you're lucky if you can see past a few feet past the bow of the ship. So men would be on the top decks during the night, earnestly listening for any kind of a sound of massive water churning or a waterfall. No kidding. They're listening for the edge of the earth. Mind you that out in the open waters, there's no dropping anchor because they have no idea how deep that ocean is. And an anchor that cannot literally land on some solid hard surface is nothing more than a drag on the ship changing the direction of it. So that's the reason why there's high anxiety during the night. And by the time the sun comes up that morning and the men can comfortably see that once again, there is as much water as the eye could possibly see is when they pass out from exhaustion and, and tension and anxiety. So it's no surprise that there, there was a mutiny. We just don't know what the reasons were and we don't know whether it was Columbus to the men or the men to Columbus. And without Columbus here anymore, we probably will never know. However, on October 11th, they also saw flocks of birds that were flying in a southwest direction. And when I say a flock of birds flying southwest, there was an eruption of euphoria on the decks of all three ships that certainly there's land because that's where the birds must be flying to. 
And when I mentioned that to my classes, I let those words hang there a moment. And then I asked them, could there have been possibly another reason those birds were flying southwest or any direction for that matter? All of Columbus's men were overjoyed because that meant the birds, seeing birds meant that there was land in that direction, which is the reason why the three ships turned to even a more south-southwest direction, ignoring the compass at that point. But I said, is there any possibility, I asked my classes. And occasionally a student will raise their hand and say, yeah, professor, I think maybe what you're getting at is that as much as those birds could have been flying to land, they could have also been flying from land. And I, I said, that's exactly my point. But that just shows you the mindset of the men, that any kind of a sign of something out of the ordinary they would, due to their own personal bias in favor of survival, simply interpret anything that they see as indicative of land nearby. Because they don't know at that point what we know today is the hundreds, if not thousands, of different species of birds that migrate from North to Central to South America that truly never land during their entire flight. Again, all of this is unknown because these two massive continents are unknown to them. Finally, at roughly two in the morning on October 12th, 1492, a man in the crow's nest spotted what he thought was something glistening way on the horizon. We don't know exactly what landmass that assistant in the crow's nest would have spotted. Judging by the coordinates of where Columbus said he was at that time, it most likely, again, was the mountains of San Salvador. But again, we don't know for sure. However, land was spotted. Eventually, the three ships sailed up to it. And then, of course, got off and most likely kissed the sand that they were walking on as they were truly standing on firm land for the first time in five weeks. In the end, and I'll discuss Columbus a little bit more in just a moment, but in the end, to finish this off, as we know, Columbus would sail back to Spain. But in the interim, it wouldn't be with the kind of glory that most of us think is was awarded to him because of his discovery on San, uh, the, uh, the islands of San Salvador. Rather, by the time Columbus arrived back, Months later to Spain, the Pinta had been separated from the other two ships, and the Santa Maria ran aground on all days, go figure, Christmas Day, 1492. So when Columbus sailed back, largely with nothing but one ship under his control, on the surface, it could seem like it was nothing but an utter failure. And I asked my students to grade his journey. He loses one ship that he thinks sunk in a storm. Rather, what happened is the Pinta, Pinta and the Nina separated, and the one took back off to Europe while the other stayed in the Caribbean. And then the Santa Maria definitely ran aground and turned into firewood and toothpicks on Christmas Day. So what kind of grade would you give him? The average student, especially when I can get a class of 30 or more, it's interesting that very few students give him an A or a B. Most give him a C with definitely a, a decent amount of hands given them a, a, a C or a D, and then even a few students given them an F. And the reason they give them an F is because of his treatment of the natives. Well, that's something that comes and is discovered later. 
However, just based on the objective, Ferdinand and Isabella, I'm going to find you a faster way to Asia and back. What's his grade? And that's where even more hands go towards, well, then he flunked because he didn't find it. Then why did they send him back? Why did Ferdinand and Isabella say, oh, hey, don't worry about it. Go back a second time. Here's a third trip, a fourth trip before eventually Columbus died. Because Columbus came back with far more question marks than he did answers, the question marks is what pushed and continued to push the agenda of curiosity. Columbus, it's one thing to say that you didn't make it to the Indies, even though after his first trip, he is fully thinking that he is in islands that were yet to be discovered off of the coasts of China, Southeast Asia, and Japan. That's the reason why the Native Americans are referred to erroneously as Indians, as he truly thought he was significantly south of the Asian mainland and maybe saw some islands off of the coast of India, hence the Guinness term Indians. However, as we know, Columbus is nowhere near there. It is not to say that Columbus came back overjoyed. He was as frustrated as Ferdinand and Isabella were. Columbus, you saw a variety of islands, islands that have no knowledge of them in any of the academic books being published in Europe. You have, see, you saw people with clothing we've never seen before, building in the types of homes that we've never witnessed before, eating foods we've never seen before, landforms we've never heard about. Columbus, where were you? And because Columbus can't answer the question, again, he is erroneously referred to as having been a failure of a journey. The reason why, ultimately, he is, can, has not only a national holiday named after him, our own national capital, yes, Washington, D.C., but what's the D.C.? the District of Columbia. How many cities throughout the United States are named after Columbus? Ohio's own state capital named after Columbus. Columbus is the only one in South America to have a country named after him, Columbia. So if Columbus was a failure, why all the honors? And that's the reason why, even after his fourth trip, where Columbus still comes back with no clear, hard knowledge of where he was, it does beg the question, what have I discovered? And that's the reason why, by the time Columbus passes from this earth, he became a hero for something he neither planned or clearly understood. But when he came back with a massive amount of question marks as to the who, what, where, in the age of the printing press, within a matter of weeks, any country or nation of people with access to a printing press knew who Christopher Columbus was and knew the questions that he attempted to answer and how many questions he brought back in return. Now the race would go on, therefore, by the other European countries to try to answer those questions for themselves. So this, you might say, is when the colonial wars break through. Not at all. That's ways in the offing for reasons we'll discuss in the next podcast. But the, when I wrap up the, this part of the age of discovery on Columbus, I bring up a huge picture 
I try to find the find find the largest one that will fill up the screen as much as possible, and it shows a couple of massive three masted ships that are about to fall off the edge of the earth with a small rowboat full of people that are furiously trying to paddle away from the edge of the earth. And while that picture sometimes can cause a student or two to maybe look quizzical at it, raise their glasses like, what is that? The title of the painting says everything. And the title of that painting is, I told you so. And that's when usually even the most stalwart student can't hide the smile that wants to creep across their face. Because that is what so many people in Europe thought Columbus was going to come back and say. We lost a ship or two due to the edge of the earth. No, that didn't happen. But again, the who, when, and where, who, why, and where, that's what we're going to start to plow into in the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting.